Hey, Hannah. Hi, Maya. Long time no see. It's been a while. Like, we saw each other yesterday and also this morning, but... Oh, we didn't see each other this morning. No, I was out the door by 6 a.m. Disgusting. We're back with season two of Rehash. I know. It's been... I don't know. How long has it been since we released the most recent episode? I think it was mid-January. So almost basically exactly a month, I think. Okay. So summer vacation. It was a little summer vacation for us. Uh, how was your little break? Anything exciting happen? Um, I've just been working on other work, serving coffees, and researching for this. Yeah, we've both been doing kind of the same thing the last month. But I will say this. I think this month has made me kind of realize that I think we have a good year in store for us, Hannah. I see big things in your future. I see big things in your future. I hope I'm there. Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Maya. I run a YouTube channel called Broidational, which covers film analysis and cultural commentary, and where I kind of just talk shit about the things that bother me. I'm Hannah. I'm a work in progress. And this is Rehash, a podcast about the social media phenomenons that strike a nerve in our culture, only to be quickly forgotten, but we think are due for a revisiting. This season is all about internet archetypes and the many, many lives they've lived. If you like our show and want to hear more from us, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rehashpodcast, where we have monthly bonus episodes, weekly minisodes, and early access to our regular programming. If you don't want to join the Patreon, feel free to rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, because that would help us a lot. I wanted to start the season out with a bit of a bang. And what better way to do that than to kick the hornet's nest that is the Red Scare fandom? Ah! <laughs> I'm definitely overinflating whatever influence this random episode might have. To be specific, for this episode, I want to do a deep dive into the dirtbag left. That is the cohort of wayfish edgelords, Bernie bros, and trust babies who have all joined together in a micro neighborhood of Manhattan's Lower East Side, commonly referred to as Dimes Square, because there's like a restaurant called Dimes there. They've joined together to be as incendiary as possible about so-called liberal woke culture. The dirtbag left is generally led by comedians, literary ingenues, and self-proclaimed bohemian layabouts uh. who run wildly successful podcasts like Red Scare, Chapo Trap House, Wet Brain, and Cumtown, all of which proudly engage in very provocative discourse in the effort to be, quote, post-woke. Uh, but they aren't all podcasters. Some are filmmakers, some are actors, some are bloggers. I think uh, Curtis Yarvin, he's like the original red pill guy, is a part of their little clique now. But mostly what you need to know is that they occupy a subsect of New York's media elites, although they would never admit to that. So as much as I am quite admittedly not the biggest fan of this crowd, I can't help but be fascinated by what this post-woke edgelord moment says about our culture more generally, and also where exactly the turning point happened in these circles that led them to where they are today. People have recently described them as neo-Catholics, crypto-fascists, neo-conservatives. So you can see how there's a bit of a change there from the original term, dirtbag left. There's actually a lot of people you and I both know, Hannah, in real life who are really big fans of the podcast and like the films put out by these people. So it's not like we can pretend that 
you know, they don't have a massive influence, especially over our particular age group and circles. Are you at all familiar with the media or the people associated with the dirtbag left? And if so, what is your cursory opinion of it? Okay, so honestly, up until very recently, I wasn't. Like, I, I went out of my way to not listen to Red Scare because... Back when they were more, it was more just like, oh, they're kind of edgy. They kind of say some stuff, but people generally agreed with them. I was like, I just, they don't sound like my thing. I don't really like this whole idea of like post-woke. I think it's reactionary. So I just, I wrote them off then. I'm happy I did because Maya made me listen to some recently. And yeah, I'm really, really happy that I stayed away from that. And I only really knew of Red Scare, and then I knew that some guys we were friends with listened to Cumtown. But again, I was like, that just does not sound like my thing, so I never went near it. What do you mean the, the name Cumtown doesn't, like, <laughs> appeal to you? Oh my god, it's not even, like, the name, like, whatever. It's just, yeah, I, I'm not really interested in, like, hearing a bunch of, like, straight male comedians talking in my ears like those guys are so something about white dude comedians they're so mean and i don't know what it is but it makes me so stressed out like i would not want to be in a room with these people like it, no. it just feels like bad energy bad vibes bad <laughs> vibes but yeah i mean i i learned to like the honor levy and dime square and like wet brain and all, all that stuff from you recently as well um so I'm very new to this world. I'm definitely going to give an outsider's perspective. but A necessary perspective. Yeah, I definitely, my views are not fond. <laughs> I also very much don't align with their current values. I was never really into them, especially the dude bro like conversation podcast. Like I do not need to hear these guys doing like a 40 minute bit about Sebastian the crab wanting to fuck Ariel like I really just it's just boring to me I don't know it's just not my sense of humor but go off I guess I think what we like you know you've listened to a lot of recent episodes and we both have gotten kind of the vibe that like of course these political opinions are very much not aligned with our own we consider ourselves like I consider myself a leftist me I too think you do too uh which is funny because these people became known as the dirtbag left so the dirtbag left as it's known today for one can barely be considered the left which we'll get into later uh, but this wasn't actually always the case. It actually kind of embodied this term when it started. For a, like a brief kind of history or context, All right. it's kind of hard to track, but this is kind of what I got. It started during the 2016 election when soon-to-be co-host of Chapo Trap House, Amber Alley Frost, wrote an essay for Current Affairs, where she argued that vulgarity was actually necessary for political progress in the same way vulgar political pamphlets had been used to incite the masses during like the French Revolution and also during... like later leftist revolutions uh she said this is a quote from her vulgarity is the language of the people and so it should be among the grammars of the left to wield righteously against the corrupt and the powerful which will be very interesting later down the line <laughs> chapo trap house which aside from amber is hosted entirely by like white neckbeards, was essentially a pro bernie podcast which put like this vulgarity very much into practice uh maybe too eagerly uh they would attack republicans of course but they also brought something kind of new to the table for the time, especially among white people, which was attacking the Democrats as well, or more specifically attacking like the polite complacency and subtle violence of liberalism or like the center left, which the Democrats are known to be. Like we here in Canada, our political spectrum has shifted slightly more to the left of what the, Amer the Americans are. So like our conservative government here, or our conservative 
Party is basically the same as the Democratic Party in the U.S., to more or less. Yeah, I mean, the further you guys in the States go right, unfortunately, you drag us along a little You drag too. us along with you. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I, I would say the Democrats would be considered conservative here um, along our political spectrum. We have more political parties than you guys do. For some reason, it's like so bipartisan over there, and yeah. that's a whole other issue. Cumbtown would also emerge during this time with a similar MO, which is being as crass and offensive as possible, uh, but they're a little bit less politically explicit than Chapo Trapos. Bernie dropped out of that election in 2016, Trump won, and I think this is really where the podcast garnered their followings. Mm. Hannah, do you yeah. remember what you were doing when Trump won, and do you remember kind of what you were feeling? So I watched the election coverage with my boyfriend at the time, and he was so stressed, and he was like, she, she's gonna lose she's gonna lose like trump is winning and i was like you're being so ridiculous you're being dramatic it looks bad now but it's early like it's gonna turn and then obviously the election was called and trump won and i was like what the fuck and then <laughs> i kind of like what the whole world we were all kind of like yeah. oh, what the fuck well when i woke up the next morning i was like i don't want to open my eyes because this is a world where donald trump is in charge of the united states i went to this my friend's house he was having a an election party kind of like to watch the results of the election and we were all kind of excited at the beginning this was a different time obviously we feel differently was. about hillary now but like we I don't i was 20 it, the times were a bit different back then again less critical of the democrats we went to the party and it started out like exciting and fun and then as the night went on and the numbers started changing we were like damn this is hard i had a midterm the next morning so i was mm. like i gotta go home i went home and i woke up and again i felt the same thing where i just felt like something was wrong i woke up and i was like it felt like it was in my body i don't know how to explain it like it felt like pathetic fallacy or something the sky was so dark in montreal and the world just felt so somber and i know i sound so dramatic and ridiculous but that is how it felt and i went to class that morning and it was my radical politics class. And the prof basically took us through. We did. We all just kind of talked about it the entire class. Of and it course. was so wild. And But it, it felt kind of cathartic to talk about with people. And with this professor who was like, so he was so amazing. Um, and then I did my midterm and I almost failed it. Almost everyone in the class failed the midterm because we were all like, we were just not in the right mindset to be writing an exam. It was absolutely crazy. And I think what really defined that period of time for me, that basically year after Trump won, was really getting heavily involved into political and theoretical discussions everyone i knew not people and like everyone but it's also like genuinely you couldn't engage with media at that time without mm -hmm. it being political without it being referential to like the state of u.s politics like you just couldn't but it was like i was also obsessed and i felt like i gained such an intense comprehensive understanding of the political systems in our world and how they worked i was in political science at the time to be fair but she... outside of that yeah i felt like i was really engaging with these discussions and i think what drove it was this feeling of anger like i do think everyone around us was so angry we're mostly recounting this for people who are a bit younger and may not have been like also it's just like it's good to provide context i mean I it'll be also the first time I was really aware of U.S. politics, I knew who George Bush was and I knew we didn't like him. But the first time I was really aware of what was going on was the 2008 election. Like, I lived outside of D.C. during that election. People feel differently looking back at, like, the Obama presidency now. And maybe it's, like, naive to be like, wow, look, things were really, really progressive then. But Totally. And I guess, and this also came with the surge of critiquing neoliberal politics. Totally. But at the same time, it felt like everybody was so confident in the idea that we could only move forward mm -hmm. and 
it was just like such a harsh reminder of how fragile things were yeah a reminder and also like an awakening to a lot of people who weren't ready to know about that right and i think because anger really clouded this this climate around this time i think people really needed to find outlets for their anger like i was like watching so many political videos on youtube like i was Mm -hmm. really engaging with these like angry dudes yelling because i was like this feels like cathartic for me and i think that these podcasts were the perfect conduit for that dudes yelling so this piece for the new york times um from 2020 interviewed some chapo trap house fans about why they liked the show and this is literally a quote that they came away with from a guy he said they're angry and i like it because they're angry Mm -hmm. (laughs) this feels to me really similar to the way white cis guys kind of talk about being at protests where like their entire experience on the protest is centered around how much like destruction they caused and how they got punched in the face by a cop and like look at my black eye and wearing it like a badge of honor and it's just it also it kind of feels like an excuse to ring out kind of this phrase is such a buzzword but like toxic masculinity within these altruistic environments and ideologies and no, i feel like chavo trap house really is that i honestly think a lot of men we know that are nice arty boys they still have rage inside of them that they look for outlets for and like have weird vigilante fantasies and shit like i yeah. i absolutely believe that and everyone needs outlets for their anger but i think when men feel like there's a political justification for it, it gets dangerous. I like the amount of people I've seen on Hinge being like, my favorite activity is punching cops in the face. And you're like, okay, it's so weird that you're saying that on a dating app. Like, it's just funny. Like, why are you using this as like a personality trait? We're losing the the message here. Because your name is Kyle. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it was very much a very initially a very dude environment there's a reason like bernie bro became such a like that as an internet archetype to be honest but red scare would pop up a bit after that in 2018 and it spoke to a much more feminine audience um who i think were a bit alienated by the two dude podcasts like travel travels and come town now red scare started as an explicitly pretty explicitly political podcast and they also supported bernie i actually listened to one of their oldest episodes today and the way that they're talking is so fascinating versus the way they talk now just talking about like aoc and how pretty she is and how her political campaign was kind of misogynistic towards her like they had a very male gazy clip of her putting on heels and the difference is palpable when bernie ran again in 2020 chapo and red scare were like vehemently on his side and provided a lot of like very specific political commentary over the course of his campaign almost like a a play-by-play And I think people were allured by podcasts like Chapo, Trap House, and Red Scare because especially in the years between 2018 and 2020, there was this growing exhaustion with and pushback against the growth of so-called identity politics. Mm -hmm. I think that what they espoused was an idea that people were becoming so caught up in identity politics that they were starting to leave class and class consciousness out of the equation or out of the Venn diagram of, you know, marginalization and intersectionality. Do you see any merits to this idea, like the idea that identity politics is an inherently liberal phenomenon? Because for them, those two things are hand in hand. I think that identity politics exists in like, honestly, like all political viewpoints. I mean, the right is also obsessed with identity politics. They're just different types of identities. And as far as leftism goes, I don't think that you can talk about class in a place like North America without considering the ways that like race and gender among other things disability as well like have intersected with that and like how they perpetuate class inequality it 
I just it feels really silly to be like this is the one issue that we need to focus on because I just don't think that anything exists on its own. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that I don't think identity politics and liberalism are necessarily one and the same. I mean, if we're going to be going to like the core definitions of either of those things, like liberalism is very much a place on the political spectrum and it you're kind of ignoring all the policies and like economic like arguments involved in liberalism by just saying that liberals are all about identity politics. What I do think is that the language of polite online leftism has now been adopted by the polite neoliberal establishment. So the ideas of like semantic social progress feel like they have all the power, which is why so many progressives, I think, were yearning for like the exact opposite, like vulgarity and rudeness and offensiveness. Mm-hmm. I also think if I'm going to give any sort of credence to this and like try to see any merits to their early work um, of these podcasts, like I do think that this is something that I've just been feeling, especially recently on Twitter, online leftism or social media leftism calls itself leftist, but I think really leaves out the core tenets of leftism when it gets involved with that. I think a lot of people on Twitter get so caught up in seeking out media representation, like looking for change and progress within these neoliberal establishments. Even if we were to think about the Lindsay Ellis, like why Lindsay Ellis got canceled, the whole debate about people defending the movie Raya, like a Disney property and like calling themselves leftists, but really trafficking within the language of liberal media. Like, I just think we've kind of lost the core definition of what leftism is. I recently got accused of being a conservative by someone who follows me because I made a video about accountability culture. I was trying to take a leftist approach to it by critiquing the prison industrial complex and using that as a means to talk about like how our society should be more rehabilitating if we want to use progress. And I got accused of being a conservative because that view did not align with like the general online leftist view of the fact that cancel culture isn't real, basically, right? So I do think I get a bit frustrated by that. I don't think that the way that they go about critiquing that phenomenon is productive. No, or like nuance. I just, I don't think it's really an issue of identity politics, stupid or not stupid. I think that- I think there are issues within it and the way it's, wielded but yeah. i don't think that it's a net negative <laughs> i think it's a net positive actually yeah i i don't know i just it's also then it's just this umbrella term to talk about like any kind of like social issues and it's really easy to then dismiss everything by just going that's identity politics care about something real yeah especially coming from like all these fucking... white people yeah <laughs> it's, it's just funny that yeah they're they're all white and it's fascinating that how eager you are to use racial slurs and like ableist slurs and i do think people are so annoying on the internet i'm constantly rolling my eyes at shit i see on twitter about people talking about leftism in the most like reductive ways and like using it to actually perpetuate unleftist ideals i do think that the way the language of leftism has been co-opted is ridiculous i do think we're very much missing a class discussion when we talk about stuff on the internet because we're so caught up in the media and not enough on like on the ground policy. But at the same time, yeah, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that identity politics is like the root evil of our society. No, and like also I just think that using the fact that your position is anti-identity politics as a reason to fucking use the R word, it makes me furious. Like it genuinely makes me furious. It makes you an asshole. I think what that really speaks to is if their initial 
mantra is the idea that like vulgarity is the language of the people vulgarity was used in original political pamphlets to be punching up like you're punching towards the people in power you're punching at the establishment but instead these people are using vulgarity to punch down and punch at marginalized people it's like so how is that helping anything like because they think that the liberal elites are the ones who are espousing all these woke ideas when it's like okay but the woke ideas are in service of people who are marginalized even if the the semantics of it are being used by the liberal elites but also if you're so concerned about class politics the people who get the most screwed by that are people whose identities you would dismiss you know under this whole idea of not giving a fuck about identity politics disabled people are going to get the short end of the stick they're the butt of like all of their jokes all the time i know and it's like these are the people who actually suffer from like the really messed up like economic situations in the states and if you can so mad if you consider yourself a socialist like yes socialism is for the workers but it's also it should be extended to like if we're expanding government uh funding and stuff for people in need the people that would absolutely be the first priority of socialist policies are disabled people who are currently suffering so much under the current state of capitalism especially mostly in the u.s yeah i have this crazy quote it's like kind of insane (laughs) from um this article called the post dirtbag left by andrew morantz it's a 2021 article he says Back when Chapo had a near monopoly on socialist podcasting, there was a common misconception that the only way to be a proper radical, at least online, was to mimic the temperament of the dirtbag left. Ideological preferences were conflated with affective ones. People who objected to Chapo on aesthetic grounds were sometimes suspected of being insufficiently committed to the cause. This presupposed that American politics consists of a single spectrum on which Nazi punching is to the left of civil disobedience and insults are to the left of arguments. But there isn't just one spectrum. At the very least, there's a quadrant grid with policy goals on one axis and temperament on the other. The x-axis ranges from a fully planned economy to anarcho-capitalism. The y-axis ranges from solicitous Socratic dialogue to misanthropic bullying. They vary independently. Which I think is so interesting what he says because what they're doing is only focusing on the temperament aspect. Mm. They're focusing on the identity politics aspect and the fact that they're being crass. And they're basically using that as a means to justify the fact that they're leftists. When like when you're talking about policy, those things don't necessarily, they're actually a little bit incongruous and they operate separately from each other also. Having listened to recent outputs from these podcasts, I would go as far as to say is that they don't actually identify as left so this is anymore this is what actually i want to get into now whatever the merits that could have been seen early on to and i think that there are some if we're going to find some merits there are some in their earlier movements critiquing liberalism is important and i think that they very much brought that to the forefront that is good obviously i don't believe that the offensiveness is the productive way to do it um, and I think that a lot of the the way that they got their audiences was because they were being shock jocks. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> do you want to take a guess as to why the whole socialist leftist aspect of these pieces of media so quickly evaporated? Because they all got really rich. Oh, actually, that's a good one. I mean, they all none of them can really talk about how they identify with the working class. They're making hundreds of thousands of dollars on patreon like i know i do think see i get annoyed when like people critique contrapoints for that very example because i think contrapoints is actually bringing a lot to the table but she gets criticized a lot people are basically like how can you talk about communism or in like socialism when you make so much money on Patreon, just, off a crowdfunded I mean, platform but like 
what I meant, like ContraPoints hasn't abandoned her values. No, like, exactly. I mean, these are people who had flimsy values to begin with. Yeah. And anyways, but well, what were you I think say? I think that's a good, that's also a good factor. I think for me, I think it's when Bernie lost in 2020. Oh, duh, right. I think a lot of leftists or people who believe in socialism or democratic socialism felt really hopeless after that election. Like myself personally, and a lot of people I know felt that the election was incredibly unfair and there were a lot of forces working against Bernie, which I don't have desire to get into detail about here. It still pisses me off. It was very obvious the way that things are rigged in the US to favor the liberal establishment within the Democratic Party. So when this happened, the dirtbag left didn't really have anywhere to go. They were angry, but it wasn't the same as when Trump won. It felt like more of like a numbness. Oh, yeah. Like liberalism in America is too deep seated to ever be effectively taken down or challenged. So what does a piece of media do when it no longer has a purpose, Hannah? (laughs) Um, I mean, it seems like they all went down like existential nihilist spirals. And I mean, a lot of people are kind of in the last few years have gone through that themselves personally but they did it in front of microphones you hit the nail on the head um i think morantz also puts it really well he says after sanders loss chapo seemed to have nothing left to say instead of progressing through the five stages of grief the co-hosts wallowed in denial it is still virtually tied menneker said after biden's decisive victory on super tuesday before settling apparently forever in the second stage elizabeth kubler ross called the stage anger But in Chapo's case, it's closer to nihilistic despair. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I mean, really, every conversation I've had about these people and just like a lot of the irony fueled conversations that uh, have been happening online, like I just it goes right to nihilism for me. And it makes sense. We're in a place where we're all leaning towards nihilistic tendencies. I personally have an aversion to nihilism. I hate it. But like I also empathize and like experience it as well totally i think that we're facing a lot of existential like nihilistic despair right now especially with the climate crisis like Mm -hmm. i often am just like oh fuck if i keep caring about this and every single time it's 20 degrees out in the winter and i and i go into a spiral thinking about it i'm going to lose my mind i have one life to live i can't spend it being so depressed about how the world's gonna end like i kind of just have to pretend it's not happening and like that's something i go through often yeah, you're like, should I just go get an iced coffee in February? <laughs> Which we could do today, actually. Yeah, I think irony is a good way to put it, like the irony poisoning. I think what very much defines this movement is that it's made of a bunch of people who are trying very hard to tell everyone that they don't care about anything. And then in turn have decided to be like as mean and as horrible as possible because like, who cares? And although I find Cumtown particularly putrid, I'm going to focus on Red Scare mostly because this is the show I have the most knowledge about. But basically, Red Scare has done and said some pretty fucked up shit since they started, (laughs) but especially in the past two years or so. Firstly, and you know this, they've always perpetuated a very pro-Anna belief system. Yeah. Which, for those of you who don't know, means a culture of normalizing and even encouraging disordered eating. I would say they lean towards the encouragement side. Another reason why I've avoided that podcast. Totally. It's very, very uh, poisonous. They constantly speak derogatorily about other women's bodies. The most popular example is that they once called Lena Dunham a human beanbag, which is wild because she actually loves the podcast. (laughs) Dasha explicitly loves tweeting about starving herself and being thin, like she once tweeted, delirious anorexic coming through. 
Um, and her followers very much echo and encourage this sentiment. One of the top responses on their Reddit to a criticism of their pro-Anna leanings said, quote, it's better to be problematic than to be fat. Someone posted on it, um, like on their subreddit, which is, guys, if you want to read some crazy, crazy content, that's a good place to go. I know they're going to probably come for me after this. Um, let's oh, get my name on there. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, we got hate from the Caroline Calloway subreddit. So uh, I'm very like nervous and excited to see what happens. I wonder what slur they're going to call me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, no, I'm kidding. I hope I'm irrelevant enough that they wouldn't even talk about me there. Anyways. Someone posted on the subreddit, quote, I'm a girl who's fat and ugly. Can I still like Red Scare? And the top responses were like, quote, if you need a gay friend to body shame you into an eating disorder, let me know. And quote, you're a little fat, but definitely not ugly. Just fuck around with an eating disorder for six months. Good luck. They also hate the Me Too movement, which they've called a sexual jihad and have attributed its entire inception to Ronan Farrow's mommy issues. <laughs> They've also sided with Woody Allen in that whole situation, who Woody Allen for me is the number, like if I can think of one person who needs to be canceled right off this earth, it's Woody Allen. So for me, that is that is the line. Also, like, is Dasha not dating Louis C.K.? Yeah, so, so Anna also responded to a comedian, um, this female comedian who said she didn't want to work in clubs with Louis C.K. anymore. Anna said... Quote, LMAO, Louis C.K. isn't going to jump out of the bushes and rape you, Kath. He's a chastened man who also did nothing wrong. Yeah, I think Dasha dated him. I, I don't heard, think they're I, still dating. Really? Because this was a recent thing I heard. Also, um, I was one of the few people unlucky enough to see I Love You, Daddy, which is Louis C.K.'s weird uh, Woody Allen um, <laughs> oh, <a> crossover movie. <laughs> and I saw it at TIFF. And then it didn't go into theaters because he got canceled. Um, and yeah, you were all spared. Let's just say that <laughs> it was terrible. Uh, if you listen to any recent episodes from the show, it's literally just them saying as many slurs and making as many rape jokes as they possibly can. Oh, and speaking in like the most indifferent vocal register they can muster, like maybe I should challenge them to like a vocal fry duel because like. I think I could beat them, but wow, they're no. they're giving me a challenge. Maya, you are too much of like, like you are a girl who cares. You are too much of like a raise your hand in class kind of girl to like <laughs> oh, lose to those. I have to, an animated voice. I sound like a, I don't know, Winnie yeah, the Pooh character. You have excited vocal fry. <laughs> you have happy vocal fry. <laughs> in this really great article called, and I think everyone should read it here, it's called Red Scare's Real Offense is Nihilism. This writer, Sylvia <laughs> McNamara, makes a good point. She goes, this is a savvy encapsulation of the problem with Red Scare. The hosts try to hold the moral authority of their professed class consciousness in tension with a suffuse irony and nihilism, but the two are incompatible. Their provocations are not just jokes so much as a way to suggest that both politics and political speech are meaningless, a posture that precludes earnest advocacy for anything. Absolutely. Like, I, I, yeah, that's exactly how I feel about them. Yeah, I don't think nihilism and socialism really uh, go well together. I don't think nihilism and... <laughs> political action like actually effective political action cannot be fueled by nihilism no. nihilism is how you feel when you're like i am not getting out of fucking bed today and you just like abandon all everything you care about that's not how you actually get anything done no not at all and i think like the nihilism void is where you get a genuinely comatose podcast like wet brain which is kind of one of the newer ones that have come up in the dime square <laughs> you haven't listened to it have you I haven't. Um, there are only so many hours in a day. <laughs> there truly are only so many hours in a day. I have more important things to do, like listen to Girl Stop Apologizing. 
for future episodes. Uh, um, well, I'm just going to touch on it briefly, but wet brain is truly wild. Um, it's just like these two people kind of like laughing at nothing. It's kind of manic sounding. So it's hosted by these two people, Walter Pierce and Honor Levy. Honor's like a literary ingenue. And Walter Pierce is like a former model, I guess. And the last time I listened to one of their episodes, they they tried to do this like global South accent. It was like a pan global South accent. They're both white, uh, which immediately I was like, oh, it's just cringe. But also they kind of fall into what the other podcasts also kind of perpetuate with it's just like this kind of laziness, like a disinterest in the very thing that makes you money. Like Red Scare is so unedited. Cometown is so unedited. Oh man, I listened to Cometown this morning while I was opening at work, which was not fun. And one of them was playing a video game the whole time. There's like coughing breaks where they just cough on Red Scare. Yeah. Uh, the same as Wet Brain. Like it's Wet Brain has a lot less followers than Red Scare and Come Town. Like I don't think that they're actually making bank off of these this podcast. Although I do think both of them are quite wealthy just to begin with. Mm. Uh, but again, so unedited. And I think that is kind of like what all of these podcasts like. It's like the perfect embodiment of what these have all evolved into. Do you think, based on your listens to your recent listens to Red Scare and maybe Come Town, that they've actually started to veer into right wing territory? So. Come down. It was it was hard to really suss out the politics of the episode I listened to. I realized didn't have uh, Adam Friedland. Yeah, they, he wasn't on there, and they were talking about how oh Adam's not here, so like we don't even have to pretend with like the political stuff, whatever. So it was just them being so offensive, like for the entire show. And honestly, I was thinking like I know men who talk and joke the way that these men do, but because they are actually like working class men with who work like trade labor yeah, it's like locker room like actual yeah like talk. none of these arty guys that we know that listen to come town would ever take it seriously if they heard it coming from like a construction worker's mouth genuinely like they also the guys that we know don't actually echo what these guys are saying no, no, like no. i was a little shocked actually to hear it because i was like oh the guys we know would never talk like that so why which we'll get into later like why because but i just mean like if they heard this come out of the mouth of a construction worker they'd be like that guy's fucking whack like what mm-hmm. the hell but because these like little new york comic guys are saying it it's subversive it's edgy because they're talking <sighs> about how redheads are really good at like giving head because they were ugly until they were 17 and talking about how like Sebastian fucking Ariel with his crab claws. Yeah, or being like, I'm coming out as a black woman and now I can say the N-word and like yeah. stuff like that where it's like, wow, you are like... You're 30. And it's also, it's not like edgy funny where you're like, I'm embarrassed to laugh at this. It actually just wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. It just, to me, I'll say this completely self-awarely, there's something deeply embarrassing about your job being that you have a podcast. Like, I think it's so like, yeah, <laughs> there's some serious cuckery about like well, also, running a podcast and I feel this way about myself. I don't know if these guys are embarrassed that that's their entire well, job. Well, at least we're trying to justify the existence of this. We don't just think the sound of our own voices is like enough to happen. But even then, I think there's um but then with um yeah with red scare the episode we listened to um yeah they've definitely veered from whatever like leftist origins they supposedly had they veered yeah they actually were saying crazy the most crazy far right like alt-right type shit. shit yeah like so it kind of began like i think that they started kind of 
there were sprinkles of this earlier on, but it kind of began when they started platforming like straight up right wing pundits on their shows, like Steve Bannon and Alex Jones. Uh, Steve Bannon is not a pundit, but like, you know, this is interesting because right wingers have actually been enamored with the dirtbag left since the beginning. Um, like Julius Krein, who's the guy who founded American Affairs, who was like a pretty outspoken conservative, like way back in the day, he said, there's a lot of interesting convergence on some of the anti-woke thinking and many things that perhaps surprisingly we agree on for different reasons. It's fairly easy to have fun, pretty exciting dialogue between right-wing anti-neoliberals and left-wing anti-neoliberals. You see how the libertarian of it all is kind of coming through mm-hmm. there. I listened to their Alex Jones interview. It is fucking two hours long, bro. (laughs) He's weirdly, like, calm on the show. From a very, like, bird's eye view, it is interesting hearing this person exist in a context that isn't his, like, weird persona. But again, there's... I don't even know if I have to debate the fact that there is, like, an ethical issue with platforming this man who has been systemically deplatformed, like, literally taken down because of the crazy incendiary shit he said like absolutely damaging dangerous information he spread and they are throwing the most softball questions at him they never really interrogate him on anything they ask him if he feels like the tide is turning in his favor and if he feels vindicated at one point like the questions kind of align themselves with jones like they're not neutral questions that they're throwing at him they're very much like leading questions they call the religious right a boogeyman which in the in America, which is like, excuse? It's so funny because in the episode we listened to, they were like talking about how the satanic panic is fake. Like they weren't saying satanic panic. Like that's a whole fake thing that we like s- Satanism isn't real. They were like, it's sa- the satanic panic itself as a thing is fake. And it's it, yeah, like the should, panic part. Like you fake. should be panicked about Satan. Yeah. Yeah. They really are on this wave of the boogeymen aren't actually boogeymen and the non boogeymen are boogeymen. And you're like, what it's the like, the wow, fuck you're you so saying? subversive, like <laughs> thought leaders. Oh my God. Yeah. And so in this one 2021 episode called Autism University, Anna defended Kyle Rittenhouse. To jog everyone's memory, although I'm sure you're all very well acquainted with this story already because it was all over the news for a long period of time. Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old who showed up to a Black Lives Matter protest in Wisconsin with an AR-15 rifle and fatally shot two people and wounded another. Rittenhouse was acquitted of all charges, which included breaking curfew, carrying a weapon underage, and first-degree murder on the basis of self-defense. And Anna basically echoes this defense in the episode, saying that he was defending people and property. First off, Rittenhouse had shown up to the protest with an armed militia group with the intention of protecting small businesses, which Anna applauds him for. She also says that the media made it out to be a narrative about race when the people Rittenhouse killed were white, and then alleges that one of the victims was a pedophile, which, okay. And then they go into this concept of like the banality of evil, which for those of you who don't know, it's an idea posed by Hannah Arendt, who is a political philosopher and Holocaust survivor, which is all about the way that evil plays out in the most mundane institutions. She was using it in reference to Adolf Eichmann, who was a higher up in the Nazi party, who, when he was put on trial in Nuremberg, constantly used the defense of his participation in the Holocaust as simply doing his job. Arendt also describes him as like a deeply boring man. So Anna and Dasha invoke the banality of evil without ever mentioning Arendt to explain that the media was focusing so much on white supremacy and domestic terrorism during the Rittenhouse trial when the real evil lies in the banal institution of the liberal establishment. And like, I just want to say right off the bat that she's using the theory of a Holocaust survivor 
to defend a portion of the U.S. population that has very much aligned itself with anti-Semitism, whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse himself is an anti-Semite. If we're talking about armed militia groups in the U.S. who are Blue Lives Matter supporters and libertarians, you can quite quickly assume what that leads to. I mean, also, they do mention the cabal in that episode, so... If you want to give me a libertarian argument for why, like, militia groups and decentralized government would benefit our society, then fucking go for it. Because, like, at least you'd be aligning yourself with some political ideology. Like, I think that there is a nuanced discussion to be had about Kyle Rittenhouse. Sure. Like, we talked about this earlier, Hannah. Yeah, well, I mean, just listening to them, it starts where they're like, the media narrative of him being labeled as a domestic terrorist is like misleading and then they say a bunch of the sentence the argument literally ends with them being like but like this idea of white supremacy is just contributing to the environment where we have this satanic times and it's like actually you didn't say anything there no totally (laughs) like you didn't actually make an argument you just like ended it with something about how it's satanic and that's supposed to close off your point totally and like i do think you know like I don't think that Rittenhouse was case was a black and white issue of Rittenhouse coming there to murder people in the same way that the guy who drove his van into protesters at another protest would be considered. Like if if you're following like the facts of the case and the fact that he was kind of with this group getting apprehended by people, the two people he killed was were white and he was in like kind of a scuffle with both of them. Sure, like if I'm going to look at it from that side, sure I could see how you could create that argument, but like he was acquitted on the basis of reckless endangerment, which to me, like, yeah, bringing an AR-15 out into a crowd, of course you are recklessly endangering people. You're a 17-year-old, you're too young to carry. And I do think the case really does, you know, seep into that argument of, like, I think America has really established this culture of fear where, like, yeah, use your fucking brain, like, use your logic. Everyone can open carry. Everyone's scared of each other. Everyone's going to shoot at each other. Like, that is kind of the natural, inevitable conclusion of that. Well, yeah, and it really, really does highlight the disparities with injustice in the United States. Totally. This is a country where young people are convicted as adults all the time. I think they have really harsh, like, youth justice laws, which... I find very upsetting. This is one case where that didn't happen. And it's very clear the message they were sending by choosing this case. And it's like in any other country, maybe I'd be like, maybe that was a carriage of justice because, yeah, I don't think that Rittenhouse should rot in prison for the rest of his life. But at the same time, yeah, like Khalif Browder, a black boy who was wrongfully accused of, I'm pretty sure, stealing a backpack, spent like three fucking years in solitary. Like the girl from Plainville, (laughs) Michelle Carter. Like, convicted off of circumstantial evidence in jail for 20 years like obviously like you could just name and name and name cases to highlight how america has like a horrible criminal justice system. and like we're underserved saying, underage people totally yeah like, we're not saying anything new but it's just really this case highlighted the disparity and highlighted the injustice and like the and the way that the system is so blatantly in favor. i don't think that there are issues have anything to do with the justice system like their issues are with liberal democracy and because liberal democracy and like the biden administration and like people that they don't like cared about this specific case and saw it as you know a symbol of racial injustice they've taken this up as like a cause to be against i guess like not really based in any actual 
arguments or ideology because they just keep linking it back to Satanism, yeah, they, which they, they think that liberal democracy is the embodiment of. Like, it doesn't actually matter the details of the case. Well, also, like, they literally say, they basically say that white supremacy in the U.S. doesn't exist, which, like, babe, yeah, like, we are talking about a fucking Black Lives Matter protest. And if you're going to come out here and pretend that Blue Lives Matter and all these fucking militia groups aren't wrapped up in white supremacy, you're you're delusional. <laughs> And also just to go, this glaring issue that we as Americans are faced with every day doesn't exist because there's an underlying satanic evil that's like brewing under the surface. Yeah, they somehow basically jump from Kyle Rittenhouse, like defending property and himself, like the libertarian side, to conspiracies about like a liberal cabal around sex trafficking and Epstein and how we're like worried about kids, but Big Pharma is giving them hormone blockers. Like it's truly crackpot. Well, it's, Material. it's just basic QAnon discourse. Like, you can't really make an argument for it inside any other, like, political ideology because it's just those are the hallmarks of, like, QAnon, like, far-right or alt-right thinking. That's what it is. Yeah, and I don't know, like, you could... I don't know, I was trying to figure out even what her ideology would have been here, and I was like, is she, like, a libertarian socialist? And I'm like, you know what, the more I try to think about whatever fucking ideology these girls have, like, I I think I'm gonna go crazy, because I don't think there is any there. You're falling into their traps where you think, well, maybe they're actually kind of smart and they're saying something, but I just am not thinking about it that way. That's what they present to people. Yeah. That's their narrative. But really, if you just were to, like, transcribe what they're saying and examine it on a page you'd realize they're saying almost nothing they've successfully created this narrative where there are these like geniuses who are willing to like say and think things that we the libs are too scared to say or think and so everything they say is just it's challenging it's like subversive and it's outside of the norm and we're scared well i feel like their use of like the liberal argument is such a straw man for just anything that doesn't align with whatever their twisted values are and it's like at this point yeah you can say anything to them and they'll be like well you're just a lib femme and it's like really oh yeah or like do i am i actually just applying like reason i love it they've they've weaponized the idea of nuance to the point where like they don't even have to use it going into the Christianity thing, there was also an article that came out in the New York Times about them last year called New York's Hottest Club is the Catholic Church, which talks about how a lot of the figures of the Dime Square movement have started wearing all of these right-wing signifiers. Like, they wear Trump hats and they wear, like, flowery granny dresses. And the co-host of Wet Brain, Walter Pierce, um, I was looking at his Instagram and he got married recently at, like, a gun range or something. Oh my god. Uh, uh, is and it he a wore, bit? He wore, like, a camo hat and then <sighs> Basically, the main point of this article is that, like, all these people, like, Honor and Walter and Dasha, have started converting to Catholicism. But when you hear them talk about it, it kind of seems like a joke. In the same way that when they're talking about, in the um, Kyle Rittenhouse episode, they're talking about the cabal, like, the le- the liberal cabal. And when they say cabal, like, it sounds like they're kidding. But they're not. Because they're doing it in their vocal fry. They're doing it in their vocal fry. It's fake. It's just, like, even if they are kidding, like... Do you think that, like, they're weird incel listeners because they definitely have some no, going definitely. and interpreting that as, like, being ironic? No, they're going, oh, Dasha and Anna say that there's a cabal, so there's a cabal. Yeah, all the human honors are going, oh, I knew I was right. Even the left-wingers are saying Yeah, like, it. you can't even defend anything that they say as, like, a joke at this point because people are taking them seriously. Well, I think they've bought into it. And I'm not saying that Catholicism is, like, inherently right-wing by any means, but I think the turn towards traditional values on top of the right-wing signifiers that they wear 
is odd. They're kind of challenging us to ask whether they're really as whack as they appear or if they're like secret geniuses who are who plan this all along and it's all just this ironic facade. Like they kind of want us to live in this limbo state where we're like, what is it? So we talk about them all the time. Like, look, look we have an entire episode about them. Well, people yeah, won't shut the fuck up about these But people. also like, here's okay. You and me are two eager girls who care a lot. You can sense it in our voices. We're so So annoying. it's easy to dismiss what we're saying because we are not giving cool when we talk about this. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean... No, I'm not chill. No, we're not chill. <laughs> by not editing their work, by talking like this and like not researching or actually giving a fuck about what is coming out of their mouths they are cool they yeah. don't care and unfortunately that has a lot of swaying power totally it's hard at this point to tell the difference between an earnest turn towards right-wing politics and nihilism is the embrace of right-wing politics kind of the inevitable outcome of nihilism and like leftist nihilism yeah i think it is like i think it, it's for some reason it's because all of these people have gone in that direction I also just think that people are allowing themselves to be swayed way too easily by their feelings of annoyance. I genuinely think people are letting, you know, some annoying tweets that they saw online from somebody who maybe is like super duper into identity politics and like whatever. As an anime PFP. Yeah, whatever. Like they are letting those, the feeling that they get of like, Ugh, that's so annoying like shut up fuel their actual opinions on things because they don't want to align themselves with people that they don't think are cool or that annoy them if your opinions are also just so delicate that you can have them be molded by something as stupid as feeling annoyed about somebody about then like how strong were they to begin with I don't think using identity politics as the target of your anger towards liberal establishment is, it's just misguided. I want to go into the story that came out about Dime Square in November of last year because I think it's like absolutely fucking insane. <laughs> um, so are you ready? Yeah. So the small time writer Mike Crumplar posted an essay on his Substack called My Own Dime Square Fascist Humiliation Ritual. And basically he had written a scathing review of this Betsy Brown movie called Actors. Betsy Brown is very much a part of the scene, and I haven't seen actors, but I know it came under a lot of scrutiny because one of the characters, played by this actor and filmmaker Peter Vack, another Dime Square guy, decides to re-identify as a woman to further his own career, which, like, yeah, obviously many people read this as transphobic, even if it was about the fragile cis men's identity or whatever they said it was about, which is dubious given that the group is known for hating identity politics and being as offensive to minorities as possible. Even if that was the case, why would they ever be shocked about this criticism of it? So Crumpler read it like this too. He thought it was transphobic. He also calls the Dime Square scene, quote, this strange downtown world of mystic cranks, proto-fascists, and abortive avant-garde's. <laughs> In text exchanges with Betsy afterwards, like after his review came out, she didn't seem very offended by the review. She was like, just read your article. Thanks for writing and thinking about it. This is the exciting thing about art. We can wildly disagree and it can offend some and heal others. Smiley face. So then they, along with these like small time podcast guys from New York called Ion Pack, invited Crumplar to be in this super meta movie that Peter Vack is directing, where they tell him that he's going to be playing himself as an antagonist, where all he'd have to do to prepare is being able to explain why he refers to art as fast in 60 seconds or less like that's all he had to do before he went there mm -hmm. 
So he goes to the theater it's being filmed at, and all of the big dirtbag names are there, like Curtis Yarvin, Nick Mullen from Come Town, Dasha Honor Levy, uh, filmmaker Eugene Kaliarenko, and of course, Ion Pack, and Betsy and Peter, and then like a whole crowd of extras. So all these people who were just kind of there to fill the space. Mm-hmm. And long story short, because <laughs> it's a long story, it basically devolves into this weird meta, like culty pylon where Peter would aggressively interrogate Crumplar, who they call Crumps, with these contextless questions like, what is fascism, Crumps? And after he responds his piece about like fascist art, people in the audience are like, okay, but fascist art is actually kind of good. And then it devolves further where everyone starts screaming at him and like calling him every slur in the book and telling him to like kill himself. He's sitting in the middle of an audience full of extras who are doing this. Uh, And then they cut the scene and start filming like a different one with other people in it. And right in the middle of that scene, Peter randomly turns to Crumplar again and is just outright like, why did you write a bad review of our movie? And then Betsy goes, your review got a screening of my film canceled. And then Peter demands that he like apologizes right then and there to Betsy. He refuses to apologize and the piling happens again. And then Crumplar defends himself by talking about like his love for writing And then it turns into this weird group therapy session led by Honor Levy, who feels moved by his words and says, like, like she wishes she felt like this about her own art. And then it ends with Crumplar, like, being outside and him being, like, all shook because he just got, like, screamed at and told to kill himself by a huge group of people. And he wasn't prepared to be doing that for, like, a full hour. And so he's outside with Dasha and people and he's like, that was fucked. And he basically tells them he's going to write a piece about this. And Dasha goes, no one will believe you. (laughs) I hope I told that okay. It's kind of a hard story because it's so surreal. It's kind of hard to like synthesize, but that's basically what happens. So what are your (laughs) takeaways from this story? Well, I was really badly bullied in middle school and kids were cruel and honest to God. Like that just feels (laughs) like these are people that have been told that they're cool and have social capital because I guess that they do. But they also feel like weirdos who got bullied when they were younger and are now like taking it out on society. But they also feel like the kids that bullied me when I was younger. Like they are like... Well, the way they're doing it, yeah. Yeah, they're just like, this isn't rooted in like ideology. So it is funny that this is a movement that allegedly started from a place of having like a certain ideology. It just sounds like bullying, which, again, it feels like really lame and cringe of me and like lib of me to You're such a lib fan. to care about that. But if you can't even justify your actions with an articulate defense of your art or whatever, and you have to just resort to yelling at somebody like and calling. embarrassing them, maybe you don't have a leg to stand on, you know? Yeah, it's sad because Crumps, you know, I listened to him go on to WebBrain and they're just roasting him, dude. They're funny, too. That's the worst part. They're kind of funny when they're roasting him. And he he's not really defending himself. He's letting them kind of just walk right over him. Course, it's hard to listen to. But we all want approval from the people who, like, treat us treat the us worst like and the people we're going to talk shit about. And we- he's like the butt of their joke now. Yeah. I really do think that this story is like the perfect distillation of what this scene has turned out to be. Like it's really just a bunch of deeply insecure people pretending that they don't care about anything and then they want to be like as loud and offensive about stuff as possible but then they're quick to react to it with even the tiniest bit of criticism. Like a lot of people said that oh Betsy Brown did this on purpose because she wants to get controversy. She wants to stir this up but like her film wasn't being played in theaters. It got taken out and also I don't know it sounds like she is pissed she sounds hurt so it's like 
Yeah, I don't know. What were you thinking? <laughs> like, what do you want? We've been watching a lot of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills lately, and it really is like that thing where someone will go to the dinner. Lisa Rinna is someone, um, Lisa and she'll Rinna. she'll be yelling accusations at you, saying crazy stuff, and then you say one thing that like strikes a nerve in her, and she's like, "Don't even." say something like that go there denise richards yeah like (laughs) i'm sorry if your whole career is gonna be based in like criticizing everything that everybody else does then you have to be able to like take the fucking hit take what you dish out i hate the idea that these are still people that within new york city you know are, are an aspirational scene Okay, we know a lot of the people we know in real life don't actually share a lot of the views that these podcasts espouse. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that they still listen to them? I don't know. Like, I know, I know that I am sensitive and I don't like negativity and I don't like mean-spirited things. So I know why it doesn't appeal to me, but I also just, for the same reason, don't really understand why it appeals to other people. Like, as far as come down, I was thinking about it today and I was like, I'm not opposed to all art that is misogynistic. Superbad is one of my favorite movies, but I think it has something to offer like substantially beyond that where you can overlook the misogyny or some of its contents to get to the real meat of it. There is no meat. Come down is all fat. Like it really is. And it's I don't really get it. I don't get the appeal of them. I can understand with Red Scare, like that was sort of something that turned over time. And so I can, I think a lot of our friends that listen to them are now like, oh God, they're yeah, whack. A lot of people think it's unlistenable. But I do think I'd see kind of the way it shaped people's opinions that I know. Like I do think it's shaped people's opinions. People are just quieter about it maybe because they're not, they don't have a platform. I think it has kind of swayed some people. I mean, I think people like being told what to think. These are cool quote unquote people telling you what to think and when it comes to the more offensive stuff I do think that maybe people don't necessarily share the opinions like downright but I think there are a lot of people that if they could say the r word freely in conversation they they would would. it gives people that liberty it kind of does feel like the puritanicalness with which like online leftism has kind of evolved it's almost inevitable that a reactionary backlash would come out against it And unfortunately, the reaction has been so strong to the other side that it literally looped all the way right back around and came back to the right wing. But I do think that that is kind of where that grew out of. I also wonder if there's some sort of myopia around podcasts that are this prolific, like Mm -hmm. because there's so many episodes and you can listen to them for so long and for such long periods of time in your life. It's easy to start forgetting some of the more like egregious things they said and do because it's all like couched within this useless chit chat and banter, right? right? Red Scare will talk about Vogue and Gwyneth Paltrow beauty things and like those conversations are like whatever, but then it'll be couched within this Kyle Rittenhouse actually isn't so bad discussion, right? That okay, so it's hard because that specific episode, it's it's so the whole episode's like bonkers. Yeah, it's not it's, even that new. It's you from couldn't really slip that into like any conversation and have it be normal. <laughs> like you're like. like I genuinely that is weird to me but yeah I get what you mean I mean not everybody is engaging with everything they consume in a critical fashion and I'm not saying like wow we're so smart like we're such critical thinkers but I don't like to just take everything that I'm told but I, I do think though to be fair like I'm very much shaped by the podcasts I listen to I just don't listen to Red Scare like I listen to a lot of podcasts that are aligned with my values but 
I listen to them for such long periods of time. The way that you're listening is so passive. I'll be going on a walk. I'll be doing laundry. I'll be doing these things that these little ideas are entering into your head almost mm-hmm. unconsciously because you're not using your active brain when you're listening to them. They're, they're meant to be passive listening. And so I do think that podcasts are kind of dangerous in the sense like they, they are very dangerously influential in many ways, like us right now, hopefully. Yes, is this dangerous enough? But I do think that it's it's a little bit concerning. And I, I don't know, I haven't listened to Red Scare for a long time. What would my views be like if I listened to them for two to three years at a time? Like, I don't know, would I evolve with them into their views? I hope not. I don't know, I guess I just, I wish we all had a much more solid footing in like what our views were. I'm talking about myself here as well. You know, I don't always know exactly how I feel about something, but I just think before we just start saying shit about a topic, we should maybe think about how we feel about something and not just like take what we've heard somebody else say because we like think the person's cool or we respect them in some capacity Mm -hmm. and just regurgitate it out. There are a lot of people that I respect and whose opinions I respect, but I might not agree with. So I'm not just going to take what they're saying and make it my own opinion. Well, social media really makes it that you can, you'll just take the most surface level takes about like all of these things that are kind of under the guise of being political opinions and make that your political belief system but when it comes down to actual politics you can't even engage in like a an actual discussion about on the ground issues that are happening no. so it's like i wonder if there's a line between being ideologically puritanical and having no ideology at all i don't think them not having a distinct ideology means that they're nuanced it just means that they're like confused and i think a lot of people get that confused like when they talk about these podcasts is that they're like well they're actually just kind of nuanced if you listen to enough enough episodes they have like different opinions about stuff and they they they, they really bring like a, a middling discussion about this kind of subject and it's like i don't know i think that they're just confused they're also <laughs> like they're middling like what is like a normal viewpoint and a crazy person crackpot it's like (laughs) so whatever the middle of that is going to be is still going to be loony it's not really nuanced because they're giving the same amount of legitimacy to alex jones types as they are to normal rational thinkers and so i don't know it's this whole like both sides thing where we're giving equal value to two parties where one is based in reality and like knowledge and one is based one is in a like, sandy hook truther yeah so no i don't think that that makes them nuanced i want to end it with this question do you think there's a movement similar to this that existed in history like i'm thinking of art movements from like the post-war period and their kind of copelessless alienation focus but i wonder if the culture there was as callous and empty as this one you know that kind of post great war era i don't know that's what comes to mind for me at least I can't speak, like, I just don't know enough about the ideologies coming out of, like, the factory and Andy Warhol's scene, but just thinking about them as this entity within New York City of these cool, like, underground types that people wanted to be in their orbit and like even just reading just kids they give them this like almost mythical status Mm -hmm. within like the realm of new york city and i think even the idea of like dime square having a name then it becomes this like entity it becomes more powerful and it becomes something that people want to like penetrate and like talk about because oh i would love to penetrate dime square (laughs) it's no longer like talking about these things separately or abstractly like you're talking about it 
as like a movement and so that makes me think of I well, don't having know, all the these studio. people you know physically sit in a theater together really does realize it as a scene you know what i mean and also like having them start in each other's films the quality of the art isn't really what it's about yeah <laughs> except like i think andy warhol in the factory as many issues as i have with andy warhol as a human being were also doing pretty subversive things and like push a lot of the grounds of what art is yeah. and i don't know if these guys are pushing the grounds of anything but they'd like to think they are they'd love to think they are (laughs) and with that i'd like to say thanks for listening to the first episode of season two of rehash and maybe the last if uh (laughs) if if this makes it to the fucking red scare subreddit i'm over i'm over i barely made it through the best dress subreddit i don't know if i can do this one (laughs) hopefully i'm irrelevant hopefully i don't matter enough to be on there i'm a little skewed Rehash is hosted by Hannah Rain and me, Maia. It's produced and edited by me, and the intro and outro song is produced by our talented friend, Ian Mills. Thanks for listening. 